Okay, so I'll do a, just a bit of review from last week. Uh, so Pastor Mike talked about chapters 2 and chapters 3. Uh, chapter 2 was his heart in action. Uh, and I kind of looked at it as kind of like the what of his heart. So like, what is his heart most like, right? And he talked about that kind of weird Greek word kind of coming from his bowels, right? From his inward parts, his most inward being. It's, it's what it's most like, right? And he uh, talked about Christ moving towards sinners and... Um, he mentioned, you know, being that, that good monk that sits in the middle of the donkey, right? Not the drunk one that falls off to one side or the other, but at the same time, we don't want to be, uh, unbiblically balanced, right? So we want to, we want to make sure that as scripture goes one direction or the other, that we do that. Um, and so we don't want to fall off the mule unnecessarily, but we also don't want to sit in the middle unnecessarily. So we got to stay close to the scriptures, um, he talked about Christ not becoming unclean, right? Christ is the clean one. So when he approaches the, the unclean sinner, uh, he does not become unclean like the priests or anyone else. Uh, he causes them to become clean. Um, he doesn't shy away from that, which is encouraging. Uh, and, and he is really uh, love covered over in flesh, right? That was the quote from Goodwin from last week. Uh, and one thing I found extra encouraging was if you look at John 16, 7, and uh, the fact that today we're closer uh, because of the Spirit than even when Christ was here in person uh, on the earth, which is uh, quite a thought to think about. Uh, and then the, in chapter 3, he talked about the happiness of Christ or kind of going with the flow. Uh, and I just looked at this as kind of the why of his heart, right? Why, why is his heart most like this? Right, and so we we uh, we come to Christ for grace and for mercy, and that's going uh, with the flow of His deepest wishes. Uh, it's it's not like He used the example of like the the rosary beads, right? And where well, I'm doing my devotion today, and I'm and I'm getting my prayer time today, so that God's off my back, right? And that's uh, not how we want to come to Christ. He wants us to come to Him. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. But he also talked about not draining Christ's resources, right? When we come to Christ, we don't drain his resources. That's his, his disposition towards us is that we would come to him. He wants us to come to him. And, uh, and we don't need to draw sparingly, right? We're not going to exhaust his resources. We're not, they're not going to run out. Um, in fact, it's, it's what he, he wants. He's not offended when we come uh, to him for his affection, for his mercy, for his comforting, comforting uh Etc. Right. And so uh, the thought that that Christ isn't offended when we come to him, that's encouraging. Uh, it's comforting. Um, and Mike talked about it a little bit last week. But for any of you who have children, uh, you, you can certainly understand what it's like um, to have people constantly coming to you in need. Um, and unlike Christ, we tend to be a, a, a tad bit shorter and less sympathetic. Uh, especially if we're drained, right, from these constant requests from children uh, that are being made of us, right? I, I mean, uh, there's been plenty of times at my house uh, where children, one of my children or all of my children, are not acting the way that they should be acting, right? It usually uh, it involves some gymnastic feet off the side of the couch. Um, and so, you know, I, in passing, I'm like, hey, don't do that. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm in the middle of pouring a glass of water for this one, and I'm maybe making a sandwich for this one, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at something over here, you know, for this one, uh, and then you can hear it, right, that, that cry of pain, right? Every parent knows oh, they're hurt, right? And it's usually, it was the miscalculated dismount off the couch 
Um, and obviously they can't walk, so they cry all the louder until you can come over there, right? So what do we do? Right, so I finish pouring the drink, I, I make the sandwich, I put it on the plate, and then I, I kind of shout out, well, if you'd have been listening to me and kept your feet on the ground, then that wouldn't have happened, right? I mean, how many times do I need to tell you the couch is for sitting, not gymnastics? Are you okay? Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we tend to be sometimes. But what a, what a comfort it is to know that, that Christ, uh, that's not how he deals with us, right? He's, he's not offended. He's not exasperated when we continually come or, or cry out in need, right? And, and I mean, of, of all people, you should look at me, right? And, and how many times should he say, like, oh, Chris, not again, right? How many times do I have to tell you, you know? Um, and so as we consider the, the what and the why that, that Pastor Mike kind of uh, showed us about, talked to us about last week, we want to we look at now kind of moving into the how, right? We want to start looking at the how. Uh, so how does Christ uh, demonstrate his most deepest affections? How does he uh, show us what his heart is most like and why it's most like that? Um, how does he put it on display for us, right? So... To start today, we're going to look at the sympathy of Christ as our, our great high priest. So I want to I kind of I'll read the passage in, in Hebrews chapter 4, um, starting in verse 14. It says this, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So I'll set some background. Uh, we'll kind of look at the high priest. Um, so the high priest in the Old Testament was from the lineage of Aaron. right? It was something that was passed down from generation to generation. So... Aaron was the high priest and his sons and his sons and so on, right? Um, but what exactly did they do? What was their role, right? So I, I think in the handout there's some verses. Um, you can take a look at those. But they would, you know, they would offer sacrifices. They would pronounce benedictions. They would teach the law, light the lamps, burn the fire. They were responsible for the sanctuary. They'd purify the unclean. They'd carry the ark. They would burn incense. They'd offer up atonement for their sins, and for the sins of the people. So I guess in short, the high priest was responsible to mediate between God and man. So we can read in, in Hebrews chapter 5, and I won't get too much into it, because it's if you've read ahead at all, it's the discussion for next, the next week. But look at verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 5. It says this, He can deal gently, it's talking about high priests, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So they were the ones that once a year they went into the, the Holy of Holies. They'd sprinkle blood on the ark um, and they offered sacrifices. They placed their hands on the scapegoat. You can look at it in Leviticus 16. Um, but they did that in order to atone for all the sins of the people of Israel uh, as well as themselves. And the high priest was the only person who would ever step into the Holy of Holies, into the, into the presence of God, right? And they would only do it for the amount of time it took to sprinkle that blood on the ark uh, and the altar. So why is it important? Why does it matter? So if you look up high priest, not just priest, but high priest in the Bible, 
You find this used about 76 times. 17 or almost a quarter of the usage is from the book of Hebrews alone. Uh, so it's really the, one of the common themes that you see throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, the need for all mankind was a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice that would actually remove sin, right? So this, the going into the Holy of Holies was something that the high priest did every year, year after year after year, because it never fully removed sin, right? It would cover that. And so what we needed was a high priest that could do this, that could actually remove sin. And so the writer of Hebrews puts forth Christ uh, as, as this priest and sacrifice, right? He performs the duties of the high priest perfectly. Uh, so because of this, all believers now have access to God, and we may approach his throne confidently. And that's not all, right? So as Orlin lays out, uh, the affections and longings that we find in the very heart of our high priest towards us, right? So we see uh, it's not just about that, right? We're going to get to see the affections uh, of that high priest. Um, so we'll look at the sympathetic high priest, right? So uh, what runs, so, so think about this, what runs through your mind um, when you fail to live up to your calling as a, as a believer, right? Or uh, what's your first thoughts when you, when you fail again to do those things that you're supposed to do? Uh, we we fail to persevere under a trial or a, a temptation. Um, I know that my first thought it goes to like how I've disappointed Christ, right, or how I'm on the the naughty list. Um, I mean, I can think about days where I I get up in the morning and I don't give myself enough time, or I don't make time to read, or I don't do the family devotion at night, something like that. Um, and I, it, the Lord is angry, or at the very least, He's indifferent towards me. Right, I have to do. This is what Pastor Mike talked about. Right, we have to do this. We have our beads. We have to do this, and that's how we come to our to our high priest, you know. And uh, you know, I send my kids to bed, and I might be angry, or you know, I'm I'm angry with my wife because of something. There's no way that Christ could have sympathy on me. There's no way that I can come to Christ at that point, right? So I I kind of despair of my failure to hold fast to my confession, uh, and I feel like. Uh, like I've come up short of entering that rest that God has promised, right? Um, and I think that this is what's going on. So uh, in these verses prior to where Orland is drawing from and, and at the end of chapter 4, um, there's a almost identical passage at the end of chapter 2. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, you'll find a passage that's, that's almost identical. It's very, very similar. We'll look at that. Uh, but then from the end of chapter 2 until the end of chapter 4, uh, there's some, some interesting language. And so I'm just going to read through it, um, not the whole part, but just pulling out some of those. So just listen uh, to, to what happens between the first uh, encouragement of Christ as our high priest who's made like his brethren to the second one at the end of chapter 4. This is what it says. We are part of Christ's house if we hold fast. Do not harden your hearts. They always go astray. Take care that you don't have an evil and unbelieving heart falling away from God. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance. Let us fear lest we fall short of the promise. Let us be diligent to enter the rest, lest we fall through the same example of disobedience. So as I read that, it's, it's easy to kind of get lost in that as um, these demands that hang over our head like a, like a guillotine, right? Um, 
It's ready to separate us from the rest that God promises the minute we fail to hold fast uh, or the second that our weaknesses reveal this evil, unbelieving heart, right? And there is, there is a command to obey, and it's necessary, but uh, I don't think it's out of fear of losing salvation or out of fear of, of being out of God's good grace, right? That's not why we obey. We obey out of love for Christ and out of a renewed heart and a renewed mind. Um, but what hope do we have of overcoming our failures and weaknesses? I mean, how do we hold fast when things go incredibly wrong and we're tempted to abandon the faith? Uh, what chance do we have of being able to enter the rest that God's providing? And I think that's where these two encouragements of Christ, who's been made like his brethren in all things, tempted in all points as we are, that's, that's where these come in as an encouragement to us, right? So we can see these and we can find encouragement that as we struggle, um, we have someone to look to, someone who's been through it. And not only that, but someone who wants to sympathize with us and is able to do that. And so I think that's what the writer of Hebrews and Thomas Goodwin and Dane Ortland, that's what they want us to see, right? Is that uh, we have someone who's able to sympathize with us. Um, you see, Christ, is, he's persevered. He's showed us the way. Uh, but he also... Beyond that, he desires to journey with us, right? He's, he's walked the same path, right, as, as Orlin talks about, uh, to journey with us in our, our trials and our, our tribulations. So uh, this is a, a great cause of great rejoicing. I, I like the way John Owen said it. Uh, he, he says this, quote, And it cannot but be a cause of great refreshment unto believers in all the hardships that befall them and their weakness under them, that they have the compassion of their high priest accompanying of them. So we're going to look at these encouragements and uh, refresh our hearts and kind of feel this, what Orland says in, on page 45, the vigorous strength of Christ's deepest affections and longings. Um, so we'll look at made, made like his brethren and tempted as we are. Uh, so Orland says on page 47 that uh, Christ came as a Normal man for normal men. And we understand uh, from Scripture, right, as we read the Gospels and other things, that Christ was, he was hungry, he was overcome with fatigue, he slept, uh, he was taught, he loved, he was zealous, he was grieved, right? A.W. Pink says that we should not think of him as merely appearing a man, but as a man in body, soul, and spirit. So we know that Christ came to reconcile us to God. We know that Christ came to destroy death and to fit us for the presence of God. But I think what's awesome about this is that Christ came in order to put himself in our shoes, um, to feel what we feel, uh, to be a merciful, understanding, and faithful high priest. Uh, so how can this be? Or how can he be this understanding, sympathetic high priest, right? We're talking about the creator of the universe. Um, what comparison is there between his nature and mine, right? His perfect holy nature and my sinful fallen nature. Um, and the truth is in these verses, I think, namely that Christ was tempted or he was tested uh, as we are. He was made to be like us in all things. Um, and so what we want to look at is how, how is this? How was he tempted or tested in all things? Um, so before we look at this, uh, I want to consider what, it, what does it mean um, to be tempted, right? So what do you think of 
When you, when you think about temptation, when you say you're tempted, what do you think of? Typically, for me, it's like I'm on the verge of being found out about something. So what am I tempted to do? Tempted to lie, right? Or if I'm frustrated or whatever at home or at work, what am I tempted to do? I'm tempted to be angry. Right? These, are, these are just things that kind of come to us, right? It's not, we don't have to try very hard to be, to be this way, right? Um, see, Orland confirms this, right? I think on page 47, he says, If sin were the color blue, all that we say, do, and think has some taint of blue. Right? So it's just there. Um, so there's, there's two things, right? So there's, there's two ways that we can be tempted. So we can be tempted from within, Right? Or we can be tempted from without, from outside, externally. Right? And, and temptation in and of itself is morally neutral. Right? So it's not good or bad. Right? A testing or attempting isn't good or bad. It's, um, the issue isn't with the temptation, it's with the sinner or with our sinfulness. Okay? So we'll, we'll look at this. Uh, let's look at James chapter 1 and see if we can draw this out a little bit. We all know this verse, I'm sure. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So now, trials right there, that's the noun form of the verb that's in Hebrews chapter 2. So that's temptations. Same, same verb, or same, same word. Same, it's the noun form of that verb. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various temptations knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So we, we can't look on that as something that's evil, right? Because James is telling us that we should look, we, we should be thankful for that. We should find joy in that because we know that endurance produces uh, a perfect result, right? You can see in chapter or in verse 4. Um, so John Owen says like this, he says, Most of our temptations arise from within us, from our own unbelief and lusts. Again, in those that are from without or from externally, there is something somewhat in us to take part in them. So there's something in us that wants to take part in them, which always makes us fail in our duty of resistance. Whatever is the moral evil in temptation, it is from the depraved intention of the tempter or from the weakness and sin of the tempted. Right? I mean, uh, I think uh, Orland gives the example of uh, from C.S. Lewis, where the man's leaning into the wind, but he, he can only lean in for so long, and he finally gives up, right? and he lays down. So he'll never know what it was like to have continued to endure through the temptation or through the testing, right? where Christ walked all the way through that. He never lay down. Right? And, and, and so, that's, so it is with us. right? We, uh, there's something, what Owen says, is somewhat in us that wants to take part in that, in that temptation or in that testing. And that's that stain of blue that Orland talks about, right? Whereas Christ held up under the, the full weight of it, right? And, and if you look at Luke 22, verse 28, the context seems to show that Christ's life is like, a, a, his whole life was a trial, right? And uh, indeed, we can, we can read the Gospels. We have a good idea of what Christ went through um, and what it means for him to, to suffer. But I, I think uh, there's a survey we can just go through real quick of some of the Messianic Psalms. Uh, and they enlighten us, right, as to the depths of Christ's share. So I'll, I'll read some of those. I think 
Uh, they're written down there, and you can check them out um, if you'd like. Um, but I'll just read through some of them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me deride me. They sneer. They shake their heads. I'm poured out like water. My strength is dried up. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and feet. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. Those who hate me are more than the hairs of my head. Songs of mockery by those habitually drunk are about me. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. So I think it's safe to say that Christ has suffered more than any of us ever have or ever will. Um, Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, He suffered from the outset of his ministry. Uh, He suffered, he he was tempted to doubt his father, right? To give in, to quit, to bail. Uh, I mean, you see it in the temptation from Satan, right? So Jesus fasts, he's out in the wilderness, he fasts. Satan comes up, what's the first thing he does, right? Hey man, turn these breads to stone. Why should you starve? You're the son of God. Grab some satisfaction, right? Don't Don't trust God. Just do it for yourself. Or he takes him up to the top of the the temple, right? And says, okay, well, if you trust God so much, just throw yourself down. Don't worry about what his plan was. Just do it. Show us. Right? He was being tempted to just forego what God had, had already planned, right? The, 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 the will and plan of God. Or you think about the distress that he's in in the garden, right? Where Luke tells us that he was praying very fervently and his sweat became as, as drops of blood falling to the ground, right? And what is he, what is he praying for? He asked God, right, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass. But he remained resolute. What did he say? Not my will, but yours be done, right? And Peter tells us that in his arrest, he opened not his mouth. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So he was made like us in all things. He was in all points tempted as we are. He is, what Orland, as Orland said, that the doctor who has endured the same disease uh, as us, right? So in short, Christ submitted to this, this life of testing in order that uh, he would feel what we feel, right? He became this co-sufferer uh, with us in our trials, our pains, our sorrows. He was tempted like we are. So Christ experienced every kind of sorrow, uh, every vicissitude or change in circumstances that we will ever come across. But I think what's beautiful about this is that in all of this, uh, his heart is to sympathize with us. Uh, his desire is to come to our aid. And that's kind of what we want to look at now. We want to see that drawn out in these passages. So um, I think as we look at these, we're going we're gonna to see a couple things, right? So it's the, the fact that he was made like us and tested and tempted as we are. It's the principal proof uh, that he's able to sympathize with us. It's the principal proof. So look at, uh, Owen says this. He says, it's not such a one as cannot be affected. He is, excuse me, he is not such a one as cannot be affected, but one who was himself tempted. And this plainly shows that it is evident that he can be affected with a sense of our infirmities because he was tempted. So it's kind of, uh, Confusing way to say it, but in other words, had Christ not come in the flesh and submitted to the testing and temptation like us, 
he wouldn't be able to be a sympathetic high priest. So that's, that's, what, that's what it's saying, right? So as we look at the verses, you'll see that um, because he was tempted, he is able to sympathize. So our, our sympathetic high priest, he's, he's so full of compassion and mercies that uh, he's waiting, as it was, as it were, for this outward uh, object of weakness or temptation to kind of unleash his passion upon us, right, upon them, whatever it is. Um, the affection and compassion from the heart of Christ, it's connected to his humanness, right, because he was made like us. Um, but that still continues today, right, post-glorification in heaven, is still the same heart that's beating there um, as, as on earth. So let's look at the verses. We'll look at Hebrews 2, uh, and I'll read it. Uh, starting at verse 16, it says this, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you see the cause and effect there, the, the condition, right? So at the end in verse 18, he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Right? So they're tied together. And it's not just that he's able or even willing, right? Christ stands at the ready to come to our aid. Uh, the word for come to the aid or help, um, I'm not sure which version you have, but uh, he's able to come to the aid or he's able to help those. Um, it's this weird, it's a compound word. Uh, so the first word is this, it's an onomatopoeic word. It's kind of a fun word to say. Onomatopoeic. Anybody know what that is? No? I didn't either, so it's okay. But it's, it's a word that is formed based on a sound associated with it. So we all know, right, when somebody's talking we want them to be quiet, what do we do? That's it. It's okay, you can say it. Shh. Right? It's, a, it's, it's like that. How do you spell shh? Like it sounds, right? Or think of sizzle. Or maybe a cry for help. What do you do when you need help? Ah, right? So that's what that word is. That's the first part of that word. It's just this word. It's a cry for help. And then the second word of the compound word is, is to run. Right? So literally, it's, it's like to run to someone's aid quickly. It was a, there was a military uh, usage of it, you know, kind of answer this SOS call or this distress call. But it's to do it quickly. Right, so I think of, uh, and Brian's not here. This is like his favorite passage, so I'm disappointed. But if you think about Peter in Matthew 14, right? So Peter is going to walk to Jesus on the water, right? So he gets out of the boat. Well, first he says, "If that's you, Lord, tell me to come to you, and I'll come." Okay. So he gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water. What happens? He looks around. Oh man, this is no good. So he starts to sink. Right? And he cries out for help. What does What does the Lord do? Cross his arms. Oh, Peter, son, I told you, come to me. You should have come. I mean, he does. He questions his faith, and, and why did you doubt? But what does he do first? It says that he immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Right? He came to his aid immediately. Right? And then he does question his faith. Why are you doubting? Don't doubt. But after he has rescued him. So 
King says this, the same human heart, and we touched on this, beats within the bosom of him who sits at God's right hand. That's the same heart that pulled Peter from the storm, and it's the same heart that stands ready and waiting to come to our aid today, right? Same heart, same Christ. So Christ is ready to come to our aid. He's ready to answer that SOS call, that distress call, right? But it, it goes deeper, right? So as, as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, um, we read this, right? So I'll read, we read it, but I'll read uh, verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So there's the qualification that we see again, right? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So it's saying he can, right? Double negative. But one who has been tempted as we are. So to qualify the ability of him to sympathize with us is the fact that he was tempted. So Orland says this on page 46. Sympathize here is not a cool and detached pity. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. This is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. So that verb for sympathize, it's, it's only used twice in Scripture. Uh, but the other one happens to be in Hebrews. Uh, and I think the passage kind of helps illustrate uh, kind of what... So Orland does a good job at talking about how it means co-suffering and uh, the quote there. Uh, but I want to read this passage here because I think it does a, a pretty good job at, at really highlighting what it means. So if you want to look uh, at Hebrews chapter 10... Uh, verse 32 to 34. Uh, so the writer is calling the Hebrew Christians out uh, or reminding them, right, the days when they were under great conflict and sufferings, right? So let's look at this in verse 32. He says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So now they're under conflict, right? So here's this tribulation. Here's this trial, right? Here's this Here's this temptation to abandon the faith, right? You're, you're under attack. It says in verse 33, partly by me, <clears throat> excuse me, by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations. So they're made a public spectacle, but it, there's more. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. There's that word, sympathy. Same, same word. Right, so there, there it is. They became sharers with those who were so treated because you showed sympathy. So they, they didn't just wish their, their fellow believers, their brethren in prison, you know, they didn't just wish them well, right? They accepted the plundering of their property. They became sharers of them in that trial. Right? They, they, they were there with them. They co-suffered with them because they had a, a better and abiding hope, right? And I think that's what a comfort to know that Christ, um, you know, he doesn't look at us the way we often look at other people when they're caught in a sin or a trespass, right? I mean, what do we, what do, we do, right? Uh, I know that, you know, you see people doing things, and, and the first thing you do is, well, and I, they, they, I told them not to do that. I knew that was going to happen, right? We don't, 
it's easy to, to stand back and kind of aloof from someone and judge what they're doing. It's much harder to, to jump in there with them and bear that burden and become sympathetic in the way that Christ is sympathetic towards us. So we've heard some of this quote, but I wanted to finish it up from John Owen. But he says this, he says, And it cannot be, cannot but be a cause of great refreshment unto believers in all the hardships that befall them, and their weakness unto them that they have the compassion of their high priest accompanying them. He is in himself exceedingly great and glorious, nearly allied unto us, able to relieve us, being far above all those persons and things that occasion our troubles. Why? For they are all under his feet. All which considerations render his compassion refreshing and relieving. So for those that don't know, my wife and I, we have six children. Uh, The oldest is 14, the youngest is three. So it goes without saying that our house is busy. Um, In fact, rarely is my wife, even now, right? Rarely is she able to finish helping uh, one child with school or lunch or a project or looking at something for the hundredth time uh, before another one's asking for something else, right? Um, but there's, there's probably nothing worse than finding out uh, that one of our children needed something after the fact, right? And, they, and when we ask them, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you come and, and tell me that you needed something? What do they say? Well, you're so busy, I didn't want to bother you. Right? You're so busy, man. And as parents, you know, anybody that has, has children, um, you have a love for them that's deeper than anything even knew was possible. Um, and there's nothing worse than knowing that you weren't able as, your, as a parent to meet their needs, right? And not only that, but you didn't even know about the need because they didn't want to bring it to you because they're so concerned about how busy you were. So they're looking out for you when you should be taking care of them, right? And God's love for his children is even deeper than that. It's even more intense than ours. And we know that Christ came and and walked in our shoes, right? Orland says he journeyed the same difficult path that we're on. And the writer of Hebrews, uh, he tells us that because of what Christ has done for us and the fact that he, he stands ready to help in time of need, we should, what's verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, right? That we should come boldly, to the throne of grace to find mercy, to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? But if Christ is so affected by our concerns and troubles, right, he has this desire and ability to help us in our time of need. What keeps us from coming? Right? And I think that, you know, this is when he desires us most, but most of the time, myself included, right, is if I'm angry or if I haven't, you know, I'm not reading or whatever it is, right, my heart isn't right, so I can't come to Christ. Um, I can't go seek him for help. Why would he help me? Or I'm not even worthy to come to him to ask for help. Right? But that's when he desires us most. I mean, that's what, you know, Pastor Mike was talking about it last week, right? We, we can't see this as some, you know, rosary bead type thing where we have to do things a certain way before we're able to come to Christ. He wants us to come. He wants to offer help. It's what most goes with the flow of his heart, right? These closing verses should be an encouragement, right? They confirm that none of God's children will ever miss out on the true and final rest. They speak of the provisions that are available from God through Christ. And we have confidence to know that 
that Christ is that great and glorious high priest. Uh, he's full of tender compassion, and he's ready to help. So I'm going to close. I'm going to read a quote from Pink, um, from A.W. Pink. He says this, So he, Christ, still asks today, Believe ye that I am able to do this? Do what, we may ask. Whatever you are really in need of, give peace, impart assurance, grant deliverance, supply succor. Anybody know what that word means? I had to look it up. Assistance and support in times of distress. He is able to succor them that are tempted. Remember who he is, the God-man. Remember the experiences through which he passed. He too has been in the place of trial. He too was tempted to distrust, to despondency. Yes, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, sin accepted. Remember his present position, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. How blessed then to know that he is able both to enter sympathetically into our sufferings and sorrows, and that he has the power to succor, to rescue us. Oh, what a Savior is ours. Amen. Why don't we pray? And then if there's any questions, we've got a few minutes. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for our sympathetic high priest. We thank you that Christ stands ready to come to our aid, that he co-suffers with us. He desires to bear our burdens and to, to, to carry the load. And Lord, we, we pray that your spirit would help us to look to him as we go through the trials and the temptations in our lives, as we're tempted to, to lay down under the pressure of the wind against us or the temptations that are coming from our unfaithfulness or lust internally or even from some source externally, Lord, that we would look to Christ. We would see that he persevered, he endured, and he did it sin accepted. He did not sin, nor he showed us. And then not only that, but he desires to help us. So we pray that we would come to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace and help uh, to help in time of need. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. None at all. Thanks. Save him. I think Pastor Mike's back next week, maybe. So save him for him. So <laughs> that's a good one. So I'll, I'll give you the. It is an assistance. What does succor mean? Is it in there too? Is that quote in there? S U C C O R. Not like secure, but or secure. But anyway, it's assistance and support in times of distress. Assistance and support in times of distress. Okay. Yes. So uh, there is a word in Hebrews 2 where it's come to the aid or help. 
Uh, it depends on what version you have. So in the NAS, I have come to the aid. Does anybody else have a different version? ESV, maybe? I don't know what it says, so I apologize. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so that Greek word is an onomatopoeic. The, it's a compound word, and the first word is the onomatopoeic word. You should all try to say that so that I'm not the only one who's tripping over that. But yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you all so much. You can have three minutes extra. Look at that.